Uh, today what we're going to be doing is kind of wrapping up our series on um, the bride. And, and this series has been kind of looking at what the Bible says, what it means to be a church, what it means to be part of a church. Uh, because our culture has kind of gotten to a point where uh, church can mean a whole lot of different things. Uh, some people are like, well, two people on a park bench, that's the church. And, and some people will be like, well, we need like a, a big building that needs to be beautiful and, you know, the, the pipe organs and all these different things. That's an idea of church. Um, an idea of church might be just coming on Sundays uh, or maybe it's partly coming on Wednesdays or small groups. And, and there's such a broad spectrum uh, that we wanted to kind of go through this series and take a look at when the church was in and what God's... Um, design was? What are his instructions for being a member of the church that he puts together, as it says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12? So as we've been kind of going through this over the last couple of months, uh, we started off by looking at, uh, first and foremost, the church needs uh, to be faithful to the word. Uh, in other words, like what other ground should we build on other than the word of God and what he says? So if we can come into agreement on that, then we're able to take a look at, at life and being the church and marriage and any number of different things and say, well, this is what God says. Now let's encourage each other to kind of follow after that in agreement and, and in unity. And we looked at, uh, in that unity, that there's accountability in community. Uh, and in Ephesians, it says, submit to one another uh, in love. There's this aspect of being together as brothers and sisters that as we go through this life together, uh, again, our culture has kind of drifted into a sense where it's like, don't judge, or only God can judge. But there's verses within uh, that says, well, if you have anything against your brother, bring it to them. Work through it. Talk about it, like reconcile, forgive. There is a, a messy aspect to community, but all of that is based on we're accountable to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ by the blood of Jesus. And that and his help through the Holy Spirit is what helps us actually have unity. The second aspect then is that unity comes through humility because that's what it takes to be able to set aside pride, to take a st and set aside personal preferences of, of what a church might look like or, or even the way that we've been offended in the past, to be able to humble ourselves to work through that and allow God to work and to change our hearts in order to bring and maintain that unity. And we looked at that as since we're unified, we need to be ministering uh, to one another within the church. There's that whole passage in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, where it equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. And that is each part doing as it ought to. The body itself is built up in love and then reflects Jesus out to the world. In fact, Jesus said, like, they will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have amongst one another. And so this service and serving one another, Philippians chapter 2 puts it, do not uh, consider yourselves greater than you ought to, but have the mindset of Christ. And consider others' needs as greater as your own. Last week then, uh, we looked into because of this, because of this unity, because we're God's children, because he owns all things, uh, that then that results in generosity as stewards of what God has given to us instead of generosity as owners. And like, let me give you a little bit out of my surplus. Instead, it's this recognition of God owns all things. All things belong to him. My life, my time, my breath, my strength, my wisdom, all of it belongs to God, and I'm a steward of that. 
And so how does that change the way that we look at serving one another and submitting to one another? So much of this series has been taken out of the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're going to touch on that a little bit today. Uh, But then the other thing that I want to do is when we were looking at our first message, uh, the faithfulness to the word, it was out of the passage in Ephesians. uh, And part of that was talking about how Christ watched the church in the word. Um, And that whole aspect of the word being truth. And this is God's declared truth. This is who he says that we are. Uh, And so this morning what I want to do is is get into that uh, a bit. Do some of that as we look at God's depiction of the church and the depiction of us. Uh, And before we get to that, let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your design for the church. Uh, And I pray that as we come into this, and your description of the church and who we are, um, that, Lord, we would receive it. That there might be things or objections or questions that pop up into our mind uh, as you describe us that are contrary to what you say. Lord, help us just to recognize that. Help us to tear down every lofty thought and argument that comes against the knowledge of Christ. Help us to take all those things captive. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you in this and to have peace in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll start in verse 22. This is kind of the verse that we took the whole series out of. Uh, It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as to the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands uh, in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So again, we look at this passage, and a lot of times we'll we'll look at it with with weddings or premarital counseling or looking at being a husband and wife, but but this whole thing, Paul's talking about it, and then he wraps it up by saying it's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Jesus and the church. This aspect that he gives himself up for the church in verse, chapter, or verse 25. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. Did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that. But holy and blameless. He died to present us to himself as holy and blameless. Without any spot or any wrinkle. And yet sometimes it's so hard to look at that and then look at our lives and say, yep, I'm the church. Yep, I'm described what's, what's here. Because anybody willingly like, yep, no spots, no wrinkles, look at me. I, I think we all struggle with that, but yet that's what was accomplished. It's what God says was accomplished through death of Christ on the cross, giving himself up, this, this ransom sacrifice where his death paid for our sins, where his blood poured out was, was the sacrifice to pay the penalty that we earned by 
our sins, by our separation from God. It was willingly, gracefully, freely paid for out of love so that we might find forgiveness. And then not only that, through, through his resurrection into a new life, he provides this path for us that, that through repentance and the forgiveness of our sins, we're, we're not only forgiven, not only is our slate wiped clean, but not only that, he then adopts us and gives us a new life and access into heaven in this intimate relationship that we looked at last week and out of John chapter 17 where, where Jesus is in us and we are in him and he is in the Father and Jesus is saying that may we be one as they are one. There's this beautiful unity that takes place only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. He does this to make the bride holy through his death. It's already been accomplished. And I think one of our greatest struggles as individuals and as a church is at times is to actually walk that way, to actually live our lives out with that, with a freedom of he's washed me by his sacrifice. He has washed me in the word. Regardless of how I feel about myself, this is what he says about me. And I think if we would be able to grasp these things and be able to, to walk in them, uh, in that freedom of identity, I think it changes our outlooks as individuals and our outlook as a church. In fact, what would you consider the perfect church to be? Like, like if you would just think for a moment, like what's your I ideal of, of a perfect church? What are, what are some of the different things that pop into your mind? And it could be a number of different things, right? I'm not going to ask anybody to shout them out because what will what, happen is um, I'm saying, like, what's the ideal perfect church? And, like, some of the things that pop into my mind right away are, are like, Holy Hill over by Milwaukee, right? So it's, like, up on a hill, gorgeous building, looking out over all the leaves that are – so that comes into my head. And as soon as that comes into my head, I'm like, no, no, wait, that's not the right answer. I need the VBS Sunday school answer. Right? So, so the beautiful, perfect church is the one that loves Jesus and loves each other. And, and so that comes into my mind. But like, oh yeah, but it'd be nice to be able to have like this building or this location or this ministry or reach. No, no, again, like simple gospel. And, and, and so there's like a whole bunch of stuff that comes into our mind when we consider the idea of like what a perfect church would be. Like what's the church I want to go to? But that's not what I mean, the perfect church. Again, we have this description in our mind of um, what is the perfect breakfast. And now that can be really subjective, right? You know, for, for me, uh, the perfect breakfast, um, I like to have like an omelet. I, well, I don't want to get everybody hungry, but you know, an omelet with some decent cheese and some of Mark's microgreens. Uh, those are great to have in the omelet, and you know, all those different things. So my idea, and then coffee next to it and some toast. Anybody else like have a different perfect breakfast? Just add some bacon. All right, done. I'm with you on that. We'll just we'll improve. Tabasco sauce, maybe. Anybody prefer pancakes over omelets? With um, there you go. Well, hey, we're we're putting together the perfect breakfast now. But the point being, it's very subjective. A lot of times when we talk about like the perfect breakfast, um, or the perfect night, or whatever, it's it's just subjective for our own tastes. And, and I think sometimes that's the word that comes into our mind. That's the way we start looking at what a perfect church would be. 
we, we start using it in that same concept of what would I like to see, what would I like to do, what would it look like. And, and what Jesus died is to create the perfect church, but it's not based on our own subjective preferences. I, I think there's a picture here in Revelations chapter 19. So this is a, a vision of after everything happens, after the church, after we've all been raised and we're all with him in heavenly realms and, and all of the sin is, is gone and we don't have these petty little differences and conflicts and problems that we just dabble in here on earth. That's all been stripped away. And so here's the depiction of the church after that in John's vision. Verse 1. Uh, after this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and the ones who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude. This is the church. Like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of a loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And again, the saints are us, those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. And so here we have this depiction of the perfect church. What color was the carpet? It's not there. What, what are the different ministries that it was doing? It's, it's not there. I, I see two things here for a perfect church. Unity and worship of God. That's it. And, and I think that's what we ought to calibrate our idea of an ideal church to be. Sure, pragmatically, there's things that are helpful. It's nice to have ministries that reach out to the homeless, to have a children's ministry, maybe someday a teen ministry, like, like all of these different. But all of those things don't matter if we don't have unity and we don't worship God and encourage others to do the same thing. This is his depiction of what the perfect church is, what we'll be able to do in, in all of eternity, and, and literally what he's preparing us to do. Again, he's preparing the bride for this moment. He's preparing us for these things. And so if there's anything in our lives that distracts us from those things, as it says in Hebrews, we should cast off every weight and hindrance that clings so closely to us and keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith in Jesus Christ. Run that race with endurance and get rid of everything that would distract us from simple worship and unity of our God. This is what we need to pursue in. Later in Revelation, uh, it continues on in chapter 21. and uh, Beginning in verse 1, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. This is what we're being prepared for. Unity with God and unity with one another. To be able to to be with him for all time. And, And that's already begun. This illustration of the bride, this illustration of our relationship and unity with him, this this preparation of being spotless and pure and righteous and clean. It isn't happening just in that moment, but happened at the cross and continues to happen as the Holy Spirit fulfills the work that's begun in us, according to Philippians chapter one. This process is taking place here and now already. We'll be looking at these verses. Uh, and as we look at these verses, um, my prayer as I was preparing this um, is, is for a, a few things to happen. Um, the first one, as we go through these verses, and I, again, I just have verses for the rest of this message. Um, as I go through these things, um, if you're struggling in any way, if you have discouragement, if you feel weighed down, and, and you're a follower and believer of Christ, it's my prayer uh, that these verses will re-anchor you in the reality of who you are despite circumstances, and that you'll find a strength and a refreshingness as we go through these things. The other thing that might happen, you might be here today, and as I go through these verses, you may feel like, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't have this. One of two things is happening there. The first one is um, that you're a follower of Christ, and you really struggle accepting his grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and what he declares to be true. And if that's the case, I'm going to invite you to come back to our prayer team and receive prayer for that. The second thing is, we're going through these verses, and and you're going to feel like, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't have this. And maybe you don't have it because you don't have a relationship with God. And if that's the case, this is his promise to you. This is his gift in grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is the relationship that he desires with you, that, that he willingly died on the cross in order to draw you into. And so if I go through these verses and you do not have a relationship with God, but you long for these things, he's offering them to you today. And I invite you to head back and to pray with people afterwards if that's the case as well. All right, so these verses, we're going to start in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Verses 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses or dead in sin. Uh, Again, what this is saying is we can't do anything to earn his forgiveness. We can't do anything to earn his love. Rather, it's his love that's freely pouring out this forgiveness. He makes us alive in Christ, even though we're dead in sin. You're saved by grace. Then in verse 6, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
Now, this scripture is, is much more profound when you understand the Greek language and the way that some of these words are put together. Where it says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That, that raised up and seated up are conjugated in such a way that what those words are saying is, it's already happened and it's ongoing. What this passage is not saying is your sins are forgiven and, and someday you're going to be raised up and someday you're going to be seated with Christ in heavenly realms. What this passage is saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of your repentance and the forgiveness and the adoption into the kingdom of God, currently, right now, as you sit in these gold chairs, you are also seated in gold chairs in heavenly realms. Supernaturally. Don't ask me to explain how it happens. God says it's done. And it's ongoing. I can't explain it. But this is what he says is true. Do we live this way? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling place in the Spirit. So many people in the world this day are, are looking for purpose, are looking for identity, are, are looking to have value in their life, to, to, for their life to mean something. This passage says you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but a citizen with the saints in God's household. You are the building being put together as a temple of the Lord. This is the purpose. This is the value. It's not anything that we earned. It's not anything that, that we deserve. But, but in his grace, he's saying, I'm rescuing you from sin and death. And I'm making you an integral part of my kingdom forever. This is who you are. This is my plan for you. This is the purpose. This is the worth and value that I have for you. So much so that I paid my son's blood to make this happen. Again, these illustrations are not just the bride. For 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. It's another verse that we struggle with as Christians because it feels like so many old things still cling on to us, and that's the wrestling that we have to do. That's the casting off that we have to do. It, we're no longer the same as where we were before salvation. We're new creations anchored in Christ cleansed by his blood we are the bride of Christ we are building blocks of a temple for the Holy Spirit we are seated in heavenly realms this is who we are and our journey together as a church is to continually cast off the old and, and to walk in the new if you're here today and you don't have this relationship with Christ, what this verse is saying is that when you come to him as your Lord and as your Savior, asking forgiveness and receiving that in repentance, what happens is you are fundamentally changed and transformed. You are born again by the Spirit of God into a new being, into a new creation that's anchored in heaven. Who you were no longer defines you. What you've done no longer counts or is in your ledger. 
It's all wiped away, and you're given this identity in Jesus for all of eternity. And then he helps you to constantly cast off the old as you go forward. In fact, the only way to have this transformation is through repentance and forgiveness and salvation through grace and mercy. Nothing else can accomplish that transformation. We can try to change ourselves as much as we want to, but it's in our own strength and according to things of this world. Jesus does it supernaturally by the same power that raised him from the dead and from the same power when he said, let there be light and the stars and the sun went into the sky. This is how he accomplishes it. We can never do the same ourselves. As that happens, we're called a child of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Galatians 4, 7, You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Like, like there is, is such an aspect of this in, in this adoption in Christ, that he makes us an heir. We're forgiven. We're redeemed. He then chooses to call us his sons and daughters in such a way that we're brought into the family not as second-class sons and daughters, but he calls us brothers and sisters of Jesus to to be co-heirs with him. This is the extent of the adoption. God makes us an heir. Romans 8 puts it this way. All those led by God's spirit are God's sons or daughters. You do not receive a spirit of slavery. You fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This Abba is, is like the word daddy. It's a, it's a term of endearment. Uh, and it's a term of familiarity. Right? So as we talk to God, we talk to him as Lord, we talk to him as Father. Uh, some of these things are, are very honorary terms that are good to use because they're, they're showing deference and submission to God, our Father, God, our Lord. But he's also saying here that through adoption, we've been given the right to call out Daddy as well. Not just to see him in reverence, but to see him in familiarity, in friendliness, in endearment, in joy, and as a childlike spirit. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. If we're children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. It's one of those things, like, who would ever claim this for themselves? Jesus Christ God himself, the one that spoke all things into existence, the the one that came down to this earth to live a perfect life and, and to die, offering up his body on a cross to pay for my sins that separated me from him, the one that that was resurrected, the one that did all the miracles, the one that, that raised people from the dead, the, the one that emanates grace and mercy. Who in their arrogance would ever go and say, I'm a co-heir with that guy? We wouldn't do it. But here, what it says is, we're given the right to call God Daddy. And because of that, we're also co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. In unity with him. 
Not in this arrogance, but in unity, going through our lives with Him as He calls us to. That includes suffering at times, but includes glorifying with Him. He's the one that chose to give us this unity. God could have been like, you know, I made you. I like you most of the time. Sometimes not so much. But, but you know, I have everything that I need and I, I'm just going to make things easy. I, I'm going to forgive you guys. And, and you know what? I'm going to forgive you guys and I'm going to give you like a little happy place where there's no more sin and there's no more death and, and you can kind of be happy over there and, and just kind of live and I'll get to like look in on my experimental human ant farm and, and how happy you are and that's going to make me happy. I mean, we, we do that with pets, right? Ant farms, birds, dogs, cats. We give them good things and we want them to be happy. And we take away conflict from them. And God could have done all of those things, forgiven us, brought us to heaven, and said, all right, enjoy. And that would have been more than enough for me. More than enough than I deserve. But for some reason, in God's love and wisdom and perfection, he goes beyond that and says, you're co-heirs with my son. You're co-heirs with me. It'd be like going to our aunts and saying, my retirement income, all, it's all yours. Like, let, let's share it. You're heirs of my car. I, it, it doesn't make sense, but yet this is what he says. We are co-heirs with Jesus. Continues on to say that we're friends. John 15, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore or, or slaves, for it's very similar uh, to Romans 8, this word doulos in here. Do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I made known to you everything I've heard from my father. We're forgiven, we're promised eternity. We're co-heirs with Jesus, and then Jesus is like, yeah, you're my friend. Let's do stuff together. And we talked about that's what ministry is. He's the one working in people's lives. He's the one that can cause the change through the power of the Holy Spirit. All he says is, I want to do this with you. The burden's not on us. He's doing all of the work. He just wants to do it with us as friends. It can be hard to accept this sometimes. But you know what? It continues on. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his special possession. Even more things that we would never claim for ourselves. But he has declared, this is what is true. This is who you are because I say this is who you are. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of special possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're special possession, but not just a possession, not just pets, but someone who's deeply loved. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers or height or depth or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are seen as precious to him. This is how he looks at us. And we struggle with it because we look at ourselves and begin to judge ourselves. We judge the mistakes that we've made. We take record of what we've done. And we say, well, because of this, this can't be true. Because of this, it's hard to really live out this way. And yet 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongdoing. The verses declare the truth. Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no denying, there is no doubt that we had spots and wrinkles, except he says you are freely justified. In other words, you are freely and totally redeemed where those things are washed away by the blood of Christ. God sees them no more. Our sins are as far as the east is from the west. That's what he declares. And so we cannot allow our own judgments of ourselves, our own record-keeping of the mistakes that we've made to cloud or cause us to doubt what God says is true. This is what that passage means, to take every thought captive to Christ, every lofty argument made against the truth of Christ. We need to take captive. Verse 8, or Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's the one that's done it. And because of that, there's no more condemnation. There's no more spots. There's no more wrinkles. And because that is true, this next verse is true. And this next verse, I think, is one of the hardest for us to accept and walk out of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin, in other words, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. This is that atonement on the cross so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness, and this word is related to holiness, of God. This is what he says. And yet most days, we certainly don't feel like we are the righteousness of God. But this is the truth. It's the truth because he says it's the truth, and it's the truth because he made it possible. And he accomplished it at the cross. And at your point of salvation, when you were reborn, born again by the Spirit of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, or chapter 1 tells us, the same power that raised him from the dead is what makes all of these verses possible. Now again, I bring these up because this is who we are and this is what the church is. And then we look at the idea, the concept of the perfect church in the book of Revelations, it's unity together and worship of God. Us grasping and living out the truth of each one of these things is what makes that possible. Because then shame doesn't get in the way anymore. We're like, oh, I can't interact with people because they don't know the real me. If you're in Jesus Christ, I just read out the real you. 
You don't know the real you if you doubt these things. That's the truth of it. I know the real you if you're in Jesus because he tells me who you really are. You know the real me even though I have my doubts. Like, oh, if you knew what I did, would you be listening to me right now? You know the real me because this is what he says. We each struggle with doubts at times. But as a church, we get to walk together and encourage each other to set those doubts aside and to walk out the simple gospel and the perfect church. Unity and worship of him as who he says we are, not who we think we are. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for all of these verses within Scripture. Your word is inspired. It is God-breathed. Each of these things have come out from the Holy Spirit, are infallible and absolutely true. And where we struggle to believe them, it's because we cling on to things of the old man, we cling on to things of the old way, and, and we doubt. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that by your Spirit, you help us to be firmly anchored in these things. And as a church, you help us to encourage one another even more as the day draws near, that we do not forsake the gathering together, but we come together to pursue what it means to be a church in unity and worship of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to invite you to enter into worship. Uh, if you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, if you want to kneel, uh, whatever you feel led to do at this time. Uh, again, I'd mentioned a couple of different things as I read out these verses, uh, and if they are stirring something within you, either to turn to Christ for the first time in your life, to, to turn after you feel like you've drifted away, he's been there, and these things are true, I encourage you to go back for prayer. If you struggle to, to believe and hold on to these things, go back for prayer. We want to be in unity, standing on the Word of God in each of these things. Uh, we'll head into worship, and then like I had mentioned earlier, about five minutes after that ends, we want to leave a little time for prayer for those that want prayer. Uh, we'll come back together here uh, for kind of a family meeting, the church uh, finance updates, all those things. But let's close in worship, in unity, and praising our God.